Miss the show? No problem. On point and on this podcast, how prepared are we should rush across the red line? You know, could Canada actually defend ourselves as a country? The Prime Minister says he's been making investments into defence, but saying it and doing it are actually two totally different realities. When you actually look into the data and the numbers, the answer is no. Canada has not made any real investments that need to be made, and we are years behind getting battle ready should we get attacked with our fighter planes, our jets, and our military. And even with the bombing of this Ukrainian nuclear site, NATO says this no-go zone is not a thing. We're going to talk to someone who says it's actually in NATO's best interest not to put off what they all know is coming. So we'll talk about what that looks like and what NATO should be doing. We'll also talk about the Iron Curtain, which is closing in around Russia. These severe sanctions have been devastating. It's left the country in financial tatters, and it's being further isolated from the world with Russians facing this bleak future. And apparently they could be living worse for decades than those who lived in the Soviet Union back in the early 1900s. So we'll talk about the future of what Russia will look like. And one of the solutions to energy security, which we need, that's available right now, is nuclear energy. But it's a nowhere on the Trudeau government's radar right now. So we're going to talk with someone about why it should be as we stare down a very real reality on energy shortfalls and so much pain over costs. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. We uh, condemn wholeheartedly uh, the musings of the Russians about uh, nuclear as uh, potential options. Uh, We know uh, that we need to solve uh, this together. We need to end the fighting in Ukraine. We need to uh, restore territorial integrity and sovereignty. And the way we are doing that is by demonstrating that Vladimir Putin made a terrible mistake in choosing to overturn decades of peace and stability, of respect, Uh, for territorial integrity and sovereignty principles that bind all nations together through the United Nations. Well, we barely averted a nuclear catastrophe, but you know what? We need to be prepared for anything. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, March 4th. Boy, oh boy. Good to be back with you. I was off a little bit under the weather, dealing with all migraine issues. I think we need this weekend. Normally, the good news... And we did get some today. Normally, the story that would take all the headlines is that, yeah, Toronto's back in business after two years of pandemic hell. That is good news. We need it. Welcome back to life. I'm glad to see us move in that direction. But of course, all things COVID, all things everything are overshadowed by the uh, kinds of nuclear threats that um, used to keep us kids up at night back in the Cold War. But NATO allies are condemning this attack on Ukraine's nuclear plant, which is uh, one of the biggest in the world. And thankfully, the site's secure now, but it is under Russian control. But that Putin thought, well, you know, here's a good idea. Let's bomb a nuclear site. Kind of tells you how nutty he is. I mean, he's made no secret that he's got nukes and will use them. But I think, you know, it was pretty sobering to watch this all unfold last night. You know, you're sitting there wondering, what, what like, does the fallout of this look like? What if it were actually more serious? Like, what do you do? And it raises a lot of questions. You know, had this thing actually exploded, would it have ignited a full-born war? Would this have been the red line? So this latest chapter brings us into a sobering reality of this thing and that is uh that there are 
absolutely no rules of engagement when it comes to a war led by this madman. And so it means we've got to start worrying about and asking about the what ifs, like what if a nuclear bomb is launched? What if Putin uh, causes a nuclear meltdown? Like, what do you do? What do we do? Is there a plan? Like, are we supposed to run out and buy iodine pills? Build a bunker? Guess I'm not laughing at those preppers anymore, am I? But Justin Trudeau was asked about this today. You know, are we prepared? What are we doing? Is there a plan? And he avoided the question. And in this new world, those in charge, which would be the prime minister, actually has to start thinking about the fallout of war, even if we aren't involved, because guess what? We very much are involved. And so he's no longer just a prime minister. He is a leader on war footing. And so far, he has, you know, set the right tone. He's taken a lot of the right actions, but these are very early days and obviously much more has to be done. And after speaking with Putin, uh, France's President Macron warns that the worst is yet to come. And after Thursday's nuclear scare, uh, what the worst looks like is anyone's guess. What's not actually up for debate is that Trudeau is going to have to soon make some very, very, very tough decisions that are going to require real leadership and leadership that serves to protect the country and not his future political fortunes. And so he was asked some pretty basic questions today, and he was quite vague on them. You know, he was asked, are we prepared to deal with the nuclear attack? You know, what do we do? And he answered it saying, well, Canada made the choice not to have nuclear weapons. That wasn't the the question. Are we prepared? I mean, given what happened during the um, the pandemic, and how ill-prepared we were to deal with that, there are very warranted concerns about if those in charge are actually planning and getting you know, ready for worst-case scenarios. And Trudeau was then asked, you know, if we follow suit of our NATO partners and you know, make immediate investments, are we going to be doing more with our military and defense? And here's what he said. Canada has always been a strong contributor to NATO, whether it's leading uh, the battle group in Latvia, whether it's our presence uh, elsewhere around the world, Canada has always stepped up in every NATO mission, and we will continue to. At the same time, we're making significant investments in NORAD and protecting North American uh, uh, strategic defense. Uh, we will continue uh, to be strong partners uh, to NATO and to the world uh, in keeping people safe and uh, creating opportunities for all. Yeah, that's, that's just empty spin, and it's not even true. Canada's not met its NATO spending obligations for years. For years. We're supposed to spend 2% of our GDP. And when you look back to the 2020 numbers, Canada has spent less than 1.5%. And Trudeau claims to have increased defense spending by 70% over the next decade. Yet the Auditor General report that came out in 2020 reveals our shipbuilding program is so mismanaged, so beyond behind that we soon won't have any ships at all to carry out critical operations to defend the Arctic, you know, just do those patrols to make sure that people aren't doing bad things like putting missiles up there. But the first of our 15 frigates for our Navy won't even arrive until 2030 at the earliest. That's a long time. As for our fighter jets, well, six years in, here we are. I mean, the Trudeau government hasn't yet to replace the, the fleet. And back in 2015, Trudeau canceled this deal that Harper put together. And yet here we are, and not one jet has been purchased and won't be purchased until at least later this year. I'm, that's crazy. We're not going to be getting any new jets until at least 2025. And right now, 
we only have 391 military planes and half of them, 55% of them are out of commission or they can't go up against Russian planes. So it's one thing to say we're spending on defense. It's actually quite another to make the investments and have the equipment ready to go. And, and there's plenty of blame to go around on this file as to which government let our defense and military spending take a back seat. And across North America, I mean, not the United States, they always make military investments, but certainly here, you know, we just convince ourselves over the year that we're just going to be peacekeepers. That's it. That's all we're going to do. Well, you know what? We've not done what we needed to do. I think we got lulled into way too much assumption that, you know, America will always take care of us and nothing bad will ever happen. Well, you know what? Here we are. And our world's now suddenly changed. And regardless of you know, who did what in the past or didn't do what, the buck is now going to stop with Mr. Trudeau. And both Russia and China have spent billions and billions bulking up their military. And both of these tyrannical regimes have spent years militarizing our Arctic. And we have naively allowed it to happen. I mean, right now, all we have to stop Russia from taking our Arctic is four non-combat planes, one base, and a handful of Canadian Rangers who have absolutely no military training. Russia has built 18 bases, 440 fighter jets, nuclear submarines, warships, and an endless supply of nuclear stealth weapons said to be the most advanced in the world. They have names I can't even pronounce. So he's not just doing this for fun. He sees our Arctic as part of his empire. And given what's happening in Ukraine, we can't ignore this. I mean, no one wants this thing in Ukraine to turn into World War III. And this isn't even partisan for me. It's not in our interests for Mr. Trudeau to fail. It just isn't, because we all fail. But with Germany now throwing decades of its energy uh, and defense strategies out the window, all NATO members, including Canada, have to wake up and change strategies. And Trudeau, you know, he took a beating in the polls for his uh, failed leadership during that whole trucking debacle. And so far, he is getting good grades for his response to this real-world emergency. But, you know, that's going to change in a millisecond, especially if Canadians start to feel like the threat is hitting closer to home and no one's actually taking charge. And when you look at some of the new polling that's coming out, 67% of Canadians believe we are heading into World War III. And then we've got to think about things like this catastrophic humanitarian crisis that's coming our way. We've got a food and fuel shortage issue that we're all going to feel and now we know with certainty that Putin is a monster. So Trudeau can't govern on what's going to get him votes. He's got to start making decisions, you know, that are going to protect this country, even if it is unpopular. And we do not have any more time to waste. That is the reality. We are made clear that we are not going to move into Ukraine, neither on the ground or in the Ukrainian airspace. And of course, the only way to implement a no-fly zone is to send NATO planes, fighter planes, into Ukrainian air airspace and then impose that no-fly zone by shooting down Russian planes. And our assessment is that uh, we understand the desperation, but we also believe that if we did that, we'll end up with something that could end in a full-fledged war in Europe, involving many more countries.
There you go. That is the message coming out of the United Nations this morning and the world on edge following this attack of a, a nuclear facility. And um, the fact that, you know, Putin would even think to do this, you know, reminds us of how dangerous he is. But, you know, he has said he has nukes and will use them. But um, it does raise concerns where it's going. President Zelensky pointed out that this latest attack is just further proof that he, you know, NATO needs to secure Ukraine's airspace. But NATO condemned the attack and the mass killing of civilians, but they say a no-fly zone will lead to World War III. But, you know, what is the red line? Because we're watching a genocide of an ally, and this war is not going to stop with Ukraine. And as my next guest writes, it is in NATO's best interest to help Ukraine secure its airspace. Eugene Chodli is president of the Ukraine 2059 governmental organization, also the former president of the Ukrainian World Congress from 2008 to 2018. He joins me now. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. So you write that NATO and its member countries should supply Ukraine with fighter jets and anti-air systems and that uh, Western pilots and additional fighter jets should be seconded under Ukrainian operational control to secure Ukraine's airspace. Why would you say that when most people say that would be the start of World War III? Uh, I'm saying that because uh, uh, the uh, clearly what we have seen, uh, particularly yesterday, uh, President uh, Putin is clear. His his intent is clearly not limited to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, if Ukraine uh, is able to secure its uh, territorial integrity, it will ensure peace and security and stability in Europe. If uh, God forbid Ukraine is not able to do that. Putin will definitely go further, and uh, and the, the NATO member countries will pay a much higher price to stop him at that time. They'll be paying the price that Ukrainians are paying today, namely human lives, and uh, that that is why, in my opinion, it is in the best interest of NATO member countries uh, to support Ukraine. And the, the most pressing issue at this stage is to control Ukraine's airspace because it is being used to commit atrocities, to endanger security for the whole of Europe, as we have seen yesterday, with a totally imbecile conduct uh, of, of shelling a nuclear power plant. And it is being mm -hmm. used to commit heinous war crimes. Uh, from, from our perspective, I do not see how those that are arguing that to send the um, uh, fighter uh, jets and uh, to second uh, or place under Ukraine's control uh, uh, fighter jets and pilots uh, uh, who would be uh, fighting under the International Legion of uh, Territorial Defense of Ukraine and not under uh, a NATO member country or a NATO flag, uh, how that is different from uh, overtly announcing that, uh, as various countries are doing, that they're sending uh, defensive lethal weapons to Ukraine, such as javelins, such as uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Stinger missiles. So essentially, they're they're, they are willing to say that they're sending defensive lethal weapons, and that somehow is, does not provoke in their eyes uh, uh, a third world war, but to send what is mostly needed and mostly uh, would be most effective in order to stop 
uh, uh, like I said, the the, the uh, perpetration of war crimes and to endanger the whole of Europe is somehow uh, more dangerous uh, to to uh, uh, or conducive to a third world war. And I think that unfortunately today uh, the NATO uh, foreign ministers have clearly forgotten uh, the lesson of history and uh, uh, that that a policy of appeasement with Hitler has led to the Second World War. You know, the argument will be, well, you know what, then it puts us in officially a, a war, a global war, and that's not something that, that anybody wants. But do you feel that um, that NATO allies are putting off the inevitable? I'm saying that uh, the NATO allies do not understand uh, the mentality of an authoritarian uh, leader with imperialist ambitions that are insatiable. Uh, and the, the, Putin only understands uh, uh, the, uh, the, word, the power, and when he hits a wall, that's when he will stop. And, and the, the issue, the, the, uh, therefore, is uh, to, to ensure that that wall is hit at the Ukrainian borders and does not go further. Uh, that, from my perspective, would be in the best interests of all European countries. You know, it's 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 hard to watch. I mean, polling shows that 81 percent of this country wants us to do more, but there is not a lot of appetite for us to put boots on the ground. At the same time, we are literally watching our allies uh, be destroyed and be murdered by this tyrant. Um, this is a guy that, you know, has a huge military presence on, on our on our doorstep at, in the Arctic. Um, you know, there's a little real concern as to what it would trigger if, in fact, we make some kind of move. And yet, if we don't make a move, you know, it's almost damned if we do, damned if we don't. Well, I'll tell you that there are some um, very strong and very good uh, calls made by the uh, former president of Lithuania that said that we can either uh, ensure that we uh, stop this war and ensure uh, security in Europe, or we'll be fighting uh, a, a war immediately afterwards at a much higher price. Uh, mm -hmm. Another uh, individual that clearly understands Russian mentality, the uh, uh, Russian uh, well-known dissident Gary Kasparov, uh, the world, uh, former world chess champion, has said, we are, uh, wake up, you are at war. And I'll tell mm -hmm. you that yesterday, uh, if God forbid, but had yeah. that nuclear power plant exploded, um, the last time I checked, radiation does not need a passport to uh, go beyond Ukraine's borders. Clearly, what was happening yesterday was uh, a conduct that is incredible and uh, a conduct that clearly jeopardized security, stability, and the well-being of Europeans throughout Europe. And if that is not an attack on European countries, on NATO countries, I don't, I don't know what is. Eugene, is, is it of your mind, I mean, how long do you see this going on before the red line is drawn and, and we end up uh, going in or having to take action? Or, or, or are we just going to sit back here for months in your mind? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm <laughs> a bit... Uh, uh, weary of making predictions because had you told me um, uh, a month ago, uh, yeah. anyone, no, notwithstanding how uh, lunatic that person uh, or delusional that person may be, will be shelling 
mm-hmm. nuclear power plant and when the, a fire breaks out, to continue shelling in order to ensure that firemen will not put the fire out, I would have told you, excuse me, let's continue this discussion tomorrow because you're obviously yeah. not able to discuss rationally today. Uh, had I been told that in, in, in a situation like now where NATO uh, member countries are supplying Ukraine with defensive lethal weapons but do not wish to supply it with other uh, uh, weapons that will ensure that, uh, uh, because clearly this will ensure it will not lead to the Third World War. Uh, uh, Russia uh, is already, other than the airspace, Russia has hit a wall in Ukraine. Yeah. If if yeah. if the uh, airspace is uh, secured, we will stop Russia at Ukraine's borders, and and that will be the end of this issue. And I do not understand how NATO member countries do not see that, and why they do absolutely want to endanger and risk either a nuclear um, explosion that will clearly affect the whole of Europe or a military aggression if Ukraine should not hold the fort. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, what a troubled time we are living in. Uh, Such a consequential time. I'm out of time. I wish I were not. It's a much longer conversation than what I can afford, but I will definitely uh, loop you in and call you on you again. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That is uh, Eugene Acholi, who is with uh, the Ukrainian World Congress uh, and now president of the Ukraine 2050 non-government organization. Uh, We see the ruble falling uh, to record lows. We see the three major credit agencies significantly downgrading uh, Russia's economic status. Uh, And we just see uh, an extraordinary cost associated uh, with this wrong-headed decision, this terrible mistake by Putin uh, to violate the sovereignty and territorial integrity of a neighboring country. Uh, The West is united in making sure this is extremely costly uh, for Russia. That was Mr. Trudeau uh, commenting on the sanctions so far brought in being leveled at uh, the oligarchs and against Vladimir Putin. And, you know, Russia's not just being squeezed. It's basically being sent back to the early 1900s. And there's no question the sanctions are having an impact. It's sent the oligarchs into panic as their homes and yachts are being seized. And then you got the Russian central bank being sanctioned. So the country can't even open its own markets for fear of a complete meltdown. But the ruble is now at junk status. Inflation's soaring. No one wants to buy Russian oil. And Russians are being blacklisted by everyday modern companies on the planet, like Apple's pulling out, uh, Ikea's pulling out, Canada Goose, Exxon Oil is pulling out. And then you got the sporting world, the entertainment world. You've got these shelves in stores now running out of food and goods. It's not just Ukraine on the verge of collapse right now. Russia is on this path of misery, kind of like what North Koreans or even Venezuelans are living. Marcus Colgan is a senior fellow over at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also the founder of Disinfo Watch. He joins us now. Good to have you, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me on, Alex. You know, for years, Putin justified that without his kind of brutish hold of uh, power, that Russia would fall back into the Soviet-style chaos. And yet here we are with his brutish actions, sending this country like, you know, back to the Iron Curtain, behind the Iron Curtain, back to the 1900s. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Vladimir Putin has achieved in the past seven days what he thought he's warned that all of us, so whether it's the Western world or NATO or Ukraine, have been trying to do 
to Russia for the past 20 years. Um, you, you know, you're right. Vladimir Putin has positioned himself with his own people as this, you know, savior of the Russian people. Um, he has remained in power because he's been managed to manufacture these constant threats and these enemies that are around him. And what we're seeing today in Ukraine is is a product of that. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin knows that his own uh, his popularity is is low, as you said. I mean, his economy, never mind what's happened in the past seven, eight days, it's been going downhill uh, for the past 10 years. Uh, the, the, the incomes of regular Russians has been in decline, in steep decline over the past 10 years. Municipal infrastructure is falling apart. It hasn't been updated in 30 or 40 years. Um, there was just a report out by the Russian Auditor General uh, last year that stated that one in three Russian hospitals doesn't, the hospital doesn't even have running water. So when you take that, when you add these sanctions on uh, and the effects of them, um, Vladimir Putin and the Russian people better start realizing this soon, is, has the Russian people by their hair, he is dragging them literally back into the Stone Age. And you're right. He is creating a pariah hermit state that isn't going to look much different from, from North Korea very soon. And you have to wonder, how much longer will the Russian people take this? Clearly, Vladimir Putin hates his own people just as much as he hates the Ukrainians and everyone else. And the question is, yeah. when will they start, start realizing that? Yeah, I, I'm still kind of flabbergasted that uh, to think that Russia has an auditor general. Uh, that's an odd, odd, odd thing. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, like who's holding them to account? But, you know, yeah. to your point, uh, when do the people rise up? I think it depends on what it is that they're learning. I mean, clearly you've seen the um, protests. They're fairly large in Russia, yeah. but there's a, still a mass amount of Russians who are being fed this steady um, diet of misinformation and propaganda, and they're being locked out from the outside. Uh, you know, they're being locked in behind the Iron Curtain. So how long will that uprising take? And then what does it look like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a complete Iron Curtain um, that we've seen it slowly descending over the past number of years. You know, uh, uh, um, free media has been completely crushed um, over the past 15 years. Um, journalists have been assassinated. Uh, the mm -hmm. last two or three remaining outlets that remained were closed up yesterday. There is no free media left, and the uh, the government has actually placed uh, complete censors on outside media. So services like mm -hmm. the BBC are no longer available. Um, no outside yeah. media is available. So he's basically hermetically sealed off the Russian people from the outside world at this point. There are no flights coming in anymore. So we are very much in the in the Soviet era right now. A very we're in a situation that's very similar to the Soviet era, I should say. Um, and yeah, I mean, the question is, how long do the, do the Russian people put up with this? I mean, they, they, the Russian people are super resilient. Um, you know, we saw that in the Second World War. We saw that over 50 years of Soviet rule. They can take a lot of pain. Um, the sort of pain, I think they've, over the past 20 years, they've had a taste of, of Western culture, but especially uh, or Western um, lifestyles, yeah. especially the people in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And I think that uh, you know, the fact once they once they're no longer to start buying their iPhones, uh, when they start uh, when they're unable to buy even you know basic products uh, and that should start hitting them in about three to four weeks. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how Vladimir Putin diverts their attention away from that. What spectacle could he now possibly give them 
um, to when they don't have any food left to eat. Um, this, these are questions that we'll, you know, we're going to have to wait to see. But I think that by my, I estimate that by the summertime, um, by the early fall at the latest, I think that there will be mass protests on the streets of Russia. I think that the oligarchs who still have money and aren't able to leave their country, aren't able to access their their own uh, assets, I think that they're eventually going to start turning on him. We've already seen a few of them start peeling away. Um, once that starts happening, I think uh, I think we might start seeing a change uh, in government because, look, either there's uh, there's there's a, a change in the regime in the next uh, six to twelve months, or we may be in for um, you know a, a very serious global conflict. Um, uh, one way or the other, uh, you know, I think we're we're going to see some massive changes coming in in, in the coming months. Uh, this is none of this is going to be end uh, very uh, very quietly, and there won't be a pretty end to any of it either. No. And then you got to wonder, like, uh, even if this goes on for a few months, the state that Russia is in, and then you've got Ukraine in the state that it is in, uh, globally, the economy will kind of be sent on its head. Uh, but what does it look like then? Are we talking decades before Russia kind of comes back uh, to life? Because, you know, growing up, it's just the Soviet yeah. Union, you know, it was always lineups at the, the, you know, trying to get bread or lineups on the street. It was always a very depressed. You couldn't buy clothing. You couldn't buy fashion goods. You, you just didn't, you live this misery. So is that what they're going to be like the J Russians of today are going to be living like for, for years? Or once Putin's gone, do you see Russia bouncing back? Well, look, I, you know, I think in the in the near future, I mean, if, if, the, if the situation continues this way, yeah, you're going to have those same black markets where they've got genes going mm -hmm. for, you know, extraordinary amounts of money um, yeah. because everything is sealed off. They won't be able to get those, those they're not going to be able to import any of any of this stuff. So, yeah, it's going to be that way so long as Vladimir Putin sustains this invasion. And I'm going to, I'm going to guess that it's going to last as long as Vladimir Putin is going to remain in power because I don't think he has any, he clearly doesn't have any intent of changing his, his ways. Um, and so, you know, decades, months, this guy changed his own constitution to allow himself mm -hmm. to stay in power until 2035. So if there is no change in that regime, I suspect that this is going to go on for a very, very long time for the Russian people. But it also means that we're going to be faced with a, a significant amount of ongoing conflict for the next 15 years. Are we prepared for that? Um, is this something that the world economy, the Canadian economy, is this something that we can sustain? I'm not so not so sure that it is. I would also say that if there if Vladimir Putin does somehow leave, I don't think it'll ever be voluntarily. At that point, we need to be make very sure that um, the Russian government, uh, whatever future government there is, is unable to do this to the world again. That means um, I'm going to go out out on a limb here. Um, I think that if if we can win this, if the Western world, if the democratic world can win this. We need to make sure that Russia is contained. That means breaking it up into parts um, mm -hmm. to make sure and take making removing all of its nuclear weapons to make sure that it can never, ever threaten global stability again, because we've seen what a madman like Vladimir Putin can do. He is threatening us with yeah. nuclear weapons right now. And just last night, you know, he could have caused a massive nuclear catastrophe in Europe. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen again, but this is who we're dealing with. We can't have that again in the future. So if we win, we've got to contain it. We've got to stop anyone else from ever doing this again.
Boy, oh boy. And we haven't even figured out what President Xi is going to do once the uh, Russian or the uh, Chinese games are over, because don't forget, uh, you know, he may just be waiting for his uh, his own marching orders to do what he wants with Taiwan. Nonetheless, um, it has been a quite a heady time. I don't think when we started talking about this back in November that either of us thought that it would get this crazy this fast. But uh, no, these are the uh, days of war, I guess, in the new new uh, world we're in. Um, I appreciate it, Marcus, I think. Uh, yeah, life in wartime, huh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Glad, glad to say we live in Canada. Um, that is Marcus Kolga, who has been very, very busy. But, uh, you know, he's one of the guys who can say, I told you so, because he has been warning about this for a long time. And, of course, people don't listen. All right, great to have you here on this uh, Friday night. And certainly the events unfolding in Ukraine has brought energy security into sharp focus. Countries, of course, that have been relying on Russia's dirty blood oil are now realizing, oh, yeah, it's not reliable. In uh, one of the more shocking reversals, Germany dumped decades of its energy policy and is now going to move off of Russia's natural gas and build its own natural gas reserves. But it's also looking at reversing its multi-decade shutdown of its nuclear power plants. And whether the climate crowd likes it or not, we are going to need fossil fuels for years to come. And we can't keep doing business with countries that continually to threaten our energy security. And so those on the left who only want to talk about renewables right now, well, they're not affordable, they're not reliable, and they won't be for some time. But we do have a clean you know, energy right now, nuclear energy. It's available, it's affordable. But for whatever reason, the Trudeau government seems intent on ignoring this as a solution. Let me bring Dr. Chris Kiefer into this conversation. He's president of Canadians for affordable energy, for nuclear energy, rather. President of Canadians for nuclear energy. Let me get that right. Thanks for joining us, uh, Chris. Hi, Alex. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's pretty stunning um, when a country like Germany, which was all in on green, all in on renewables, all in on, you know, taking this path to have them so abruptly reverse course and now even be discussing opening up their uh, nuclear plants. That should be, I think, a signal to all NATO allies and all of us to say, OK, we got to we've got to really change our plan and focus on, um, you know, energy security. And yet some of the things I've heard the Trudeau government say in the last week signals to me that they're not interested in having this conversation. Yeah, I'd agree with you. You know, I was in Germany, actually, um, in uh, November of last year. I mean, this was before That's the right. war um, and having some very interesting yeah. discussions with uh, with energy analysts there. Um, including some folks within the uh, the energy ministry uh, in Germany. And, you know, you're right. It's a country that spent 550 billion euros so far on a energy transition that's dominated by wind and solar technologies. And they were absolutely clear with me that they were completely depending on gas. This was their way to firm up their system, right? And there's a lot of talk about how, well, you know, wind and solar can't do it yet. Let me tell you, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Wind and solar cannot fill in their own gaps. We're needing fossil fuels. Germany is, is illustrating that. This is a country, again, one of the wealthiest in the world. If any country um, can harness, you know, myriad number of technologies that are not fossil in order to back up a renewable fleet, it should be them. But no, instead, they've been building out uh, a pipeline infrastructure, connecting themselves um, like an addict um, to the Russian gas fields. And, and here we are now. Um, and to some degree, their, their response um, to Russia is, is limited by that. Um, it is interesting to note that gas has been continuing to flow to Europe uh, from Russia so far during this war. 
Um, but you're right. Germany is having to do a major rethink. Um, and there is serious talk now um, of delaying the closure or, or halting the closure of the remaining three nuclear units that they have and perhaps even bringing back some of the units that they turned off on New Year's Eve of, uh, of 2021. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a, a role for Canada pl- to play here. We do have a lot of natural gas. We should be a go-to for, for you know, reliable energy for our friends in Europe to get it if they need it and, and for anybody um, that needs it. But, but for whatever reason, um, this government does not seem to be kind of taking the stand to say, look, there, there's an opportunity for us here. It's good for our energy security, but they're not having that, that discussion. But Stephen Gibol is out there kind of, it almost seems like in his own world, um, not even part of any conversation because he's so hell-bent on only one mode, and that is renewables. But, you know, there's no way we could move to renewables tomorrow, even if we wanted to. I mean, for all those saying, well, we can't build pipelines in time, renewables are even further away. My concern is, uh, Doctor, that no one's actually going to have a conversation that we need, and we're never actually going to be getting ready for this. And I think, you know, the fact that we're comforted by our geographical position, I think makes us a bit ignorant um, to, to the actual threats. Well, you know, we're in a global energy crisis and we've gotten pretty used to having really cheap energy. And that's allowed us to have a very prosperous world, to have you know fairly cheap prices for some of the basics that we take for granted for our transportation fuels, for food, et cetera. And we're about to get a real slap in the face, a real wake up call. You know, it's a noble thing to be making efforts to mitigate and, and adapt to climate change. Um, but we've been doing it in a way that is frankly naive. Um, and I'm saying here that the, the fog of peace is lifting um, because we're seeing now um, that Europe is pivoting towards burning a bunch of coal, actually, because gas has gotten so expensive. Um, you know, again, just wind and solar do not do not um, produce um, predictably and reliably. Um, there's huge gaps in their production. You know, we talk about something called mm-hmm. capacity factor, which is the percentage of, of the total um, installed capacity that, that um, an energy source um, produces every year. Um, nuclear is about 93, 94% in most countries. Um, solar in Canada is about 11 or 12%. You know, wind is 25%. So yeah. what are you going to do when those resources aren't, aren't uh, providing? No one is going to let their family freeze in the dark. You'll burn whatever there is around you. And that's completely avoidable. And that's it, certainly in Canada, that's completely avoidable because we have this ingenious technology that we put together ourselves, this can-do technology. Um, you know, when we're making an investment in an energy transition, which is expensive, every dollar of that energy transition spending should stay in Canada. Um, it should be helping our communities flourish and grow and prosper. And we have an opportunity to do that with nuclear because our supply chain is 96% made in Canada. We own the IP. You know, we develop the tools. We have the uranium mines. We have the manufacturing abilities, the refurbishment. We've got a great, highly trained workforce. We should really be leaning into this technology. Because if it can, can I just ask you something, though, can, can we are we able to export nuclear energy? Is that a thing? Absolutely. And we've done it for sure. Yeah, we've exported our technology to Korea, to China, to Romania, um, a number of other countries. Um, and in my mind, I mean, Canada has got a, a big, a big piece of the pie. We're a developed country with high levels of emissions. But, you know, it's the middle income countries that are really going to be uh, having skyrocketing emissions um, as they see yeah. the level of development that we have. Um, and we have the ability to transfer our technology and to profit from transferring our technology um, so that we can thrive and we can help other countries thrive as well um, in developing clean, carbon-free power. 
But you know what the argument will be? The argument will be, you know, like we got this this incident that happened on Thursday with this, uh, you know, firing upon a nuclear plant and what the, you know, what the disaster it could have been, you know, 10 times worse uh, than Chernobyl. So there's real fear about it. And that's the argument that critics will give is, well, you know, we don't want to have that happen, um, despite the fact that I think our record for 75 years has been pretty impeccable. So people will still use that argument. So how do you change that part of the conversation? Well, let's be honest. I think people are, are really terrified about nuclear war, as we've always been. You know, I've grown up in the luxury of, of sort of a post-Cold War era, um, and it's been a little hair-raising thinking about, you know, yeah. this conflict yeah. that, you know, Russia testing out, um, you know, its, its nuclear forces, making sure that they're ready to go. Um, these, are, these are scary times, and nuclear plants, I think, become a place where we can displace some of that anxiety. Yes, this is incredibly alarming that a civilian nuclear plant um, has been, it sounds like it's been occupied now by the Russians. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been really, really irresponsible media reporting on this. We have to remember that, you know, shouting fire in a theater is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Um, We don't want people unnecessarily evacuating, running around in the middle of a firefight, right? The idea that that this could be like Chernobyl is just has no basis in nuclear engineering. Chernobyl was a graphite moderated reactor, had no containment. It actually, you know, the moderator could catch on fire and burn. Um, this is a completely different reactor technology, um, you know, and f- uh, most of the reactors on the site of the plant have already been shut down. They shut down very quickly. They need to be cooled now for about a week. Um, and there are diesel generators and water on site to do that and a number of backups. So a lot has been learned from nuclear accidents in the past and I think is in place. I don't think it's in anyone's interest, um, Ukrainians or the Russians, um, to have a, an incident at those nuclear plants. Um, and so far, we're not seeing anything um, in terms of a, of a radiation release or anything of that kind. You know, any 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 energy infrastructure can be dangerous. And indeed, the biggest energy catastrophes sure. have actually been hydro dams blowing up um, or failing. Um, you know, there was a, a dam in China called the Bankao Dam Collapse um, that killed anywhere between uh, 50 and 200,000 people, um, depending on how you how you run those numbers. Right. But energy by nature, it's 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 uh it's potent, volatile. right? It's yeah, volatile. Yeah. Um, so we need to be adults. We need to, you know, put our thinking caps on um, and make wise decisions, and not not succumb yeah. to fear. <laughs> Yeah, the other concern, just before I let you go, Chris, is that, you know, um, this really should have been a wake-up call, the the invasion and what we're seeing. And and my concern is, while we're seeing countries like Germany, um, you know, pivot very hard and quickly, I mean, Stephen Gibol is, um, you know, still marching full steam ahead on only just renewables. You know, they've developed this green bond framework and uh, nuclear energy. I don't even know what this thing is, but nuclear energy is is clearly not part of this government's plan. And I'm not sure how they can put out any kind of framework on anything given the last uh, two weeks and, and the fact that it is such a game changer. You know, I confronted Stephen Gilbo at the COP26 uh, climate conference over his anti-nuclear record and whether that would cloud his judgment um, on this critical portfolio of climate change and the environment. Um, and he said the government has no role in uh, deciding which technology to uh, to pursue in terms of decarbonization. And here we have uh, several months later, um, this this green bond um, that the government has laid out and it excludes nuclear. And it's it's comical. It, it lists nuclear alongside gambling, um, tobacco products, alcohol as things that will not be funded um, and as green investments um, with no real rationale given. There's been no consultation with the Canadian people. This is ideologic warfare um, on mm-hmm. what is the keystone technology um, that we really need to be putting into place uh, to, to decarbonize as well as to meet energy security needs. 
Well, nonetheless, I think um, money talks at the end of the day in uh, two months, three months. Uh, this may be a conversation that is forced upon this government um, because people will be, you know, losing their minds if they can't afford energy and there's no, um, you know, plan B put into uh, to the picture. Um, I'll, we'll talk again, I'm sure of it, uh, Doctor, and I very much appreciate your time on this. I look forward to it, Alex. Thanks for having me back. That is uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer who is the president for of Canadians for nuclear energy. I, it just has to be part of the conversation. I don't even, you know, I've, not, I've never really talked about nuclear energy up until recently, but I just don't know how it's, now that I have been and looking into it and its availability and its affordability and the fact that it's clean and it's like available now, I just don't know how it's not part of any conversation. To me, it's just something that absolutely should be part of any plan moving forward. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.